Hey everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It is really wonderful to have you here. On this week's episode, I present the audio recording of our very first installment of the What Am I Watching movie club. For our initial run, we watched Breaker Morant, an old and dear favorite of mine. I was joined by my friends Tina Winsett, Barry Hummel, and Jeff Gower for a small but excellent discussion of the film. Let's get into it. It's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. Uh, I was not expecting to do this episode this way. Um, I am recording this on uh, Tuesday night, November 7th at 8.26 uh, Eastern Standard Time. I'm supposed to be in Vietnam right now. Um, I was supposed to be in Vietnam for three weeks, well, nearly three weeks, with my mother. We were supposed to leave on Saturday, November 4th. And uh, we had a pretty awful series of setbacks that wound up bringing us home something around 48 hours after we left. Uh, We went and spent two full days at an airport hotel in Chicago trying to pull off a miracle so we could actually board a flight. But visa issues, airline uh, policies, and a very, very upsetting and uh, unhelpful series of communications with ticket agents, uh, travel agents, uh, booking people, uh, financial people, uh, flight attendants. Uh, it, was, it was a mess. I, d- I did things on text and WhatsApp and email and phone and in person, and it was just a nightmare. You can read the full story over at whatamimaking.substack.com. You certainly don't want me to try to take the time to tell the whole thing to you now, and I don't really feel like telling it again. I'm already sick of telling it. I am okay. Um, these are, uh, to put it mildly, first world problems. Um, I didn't get to go on a holiday. It's not like I lost my house or I don't have clean water or uh, somebody got cancer. Uh, we're okay. Uh, we were just really bummed and really disappointed and, and really angry, right? Right now, um, my mother is out several thousand dollars. And based on everything we've seen so far, there's no chance of getting it, getting it back. And it really sucks. Um, I'm still trying to make some things happen for her, but we shall see. It's, it's, it's a shitty situation, but uh, we will recover. And uh, we are already talking about where we're going to go next. And uh, we won't be doing it through Exotica or through Eva Air. So uh, that was one thing that I would recommend to you is avoid those two agencies. Exotica did such a great job with our first tour, and they were amazing. And this time they absolutely made it a dreadful experience, and they've taken our money and given us nothing that we paid for. And it's been really awful. But I, I want to move on to bigger and, and better things, my friends. I just wanted to let you know that that's, that's why I'm here. If you weren't expecting to to hear my voice like this or expected to hear it from Vietnam, which is what I was expecting, um, I was really hoping that next Monday I was going to give you an episode of me and my mom sitting somewhere in a beautiful tropical locale in Vietnam or Cambodia, and we would have a beer and 
she and I would talk for a while about what our trip had been like so far, and we could share that with you. And I don't get to do that now, and that really sucks. But I get to share other stuff with you, and I will use this time uh, as best I can, and I'll make the most of it. Uh, as my mother says, we're making lemonade. Um, we're we're just trying to kind of keep our chin up. So uh, let's move on to bigger and better things, shall we? Uh, did you all know I have a radio show? Yeah, WAIM, What Am I Making Radio, is on every Friday over at the Rock in the Suburbs Radio Network at suburbsradio.com. Every noon Eastern time on Friday, you can hear a live show from me, Maddie C. I do a one-hour themed radio show, and if you can't catch it live, uh, I do uh, post the replays so that you can listen to them the week after they post. They're available up on Mixcloud at the Rock in the Suburbs uh, radio archive. And uh, I put those up every week so you can always go and find those. Make sure you're also chiming in on our weekly discussions about songs that you might like for each given theme. Last week I asked for songs about color and got a ton of great answers. I even included a couple of them in the show. So make sure you go back and listen to episode four, which is called The Color Wheel. Uh, the other thing we got going on that's been really fun and kind of community driven is we've been having this Steven Spielberg bracket challenge where we're going through and um, I took 32 of, of Spielberg's, you know, 37 or 38 films that he's made and I seeded them one to 32 and then we pitted them in a uh, NCAA tournament style bracket and we've been voting and we're well into the second round now and uh, get your votes in, make sure that you're voting. Uh, we're doing a new matchup. Every Saturday right now, and there are two matchups in these uh, second round contests, and this is going to decide where our Elite Eight is going to be. And uh, it's been really interesting so far. The matchups are getting more interesting and a little tighter, and uh, it's a lot of fun. It's led to a lot of really great discussion. There was some really good talk a day or two ago about, um, you know, the folks out there who maybe feel like... uh, E.T. gets more love than it should. And I, I, I love, even though I don't necessarily agree or understand that viewpoint, I love hearing about it. And uh, I know one of those people who was in that conversation uh, incredibly well, and I know how he feels about this film. And I understand where he comes from, uh, even though he and I feel differently about it. And I just love to see these discussions and the way that different people interacted with these films and the different baggage that they each bring. It's been, it's been really fun, so make sure that you're checking out uh, our weekly votes and our weekly recaps and uh, we'll just keep barreling along until we pick Steven Spielberg's greatest film. Uh, it should be really, really fun. Make sure that uh, you're out there voting every time you get a chance. Uh, another thing I started in the last week or two is a new series called The Ride Share Files. This is where I tell some stories about my experiences as a driver for Uber and Lyft. So I posted uh, a, uh, a new article uh, a week or 10 days ago about two different rides that I had um, – during the month of September that were really fascinating. One of them involved some incredible life-changing news, and the other one allowed me to play dad to some some young men who needed it in that moment, and, and that was a, it's a really fun thing to put those together, and I've already had some amazing experiences that I want to write about since I published that, and I've got lock, lots more that I've been kind of stockpiling, so expect to see more of those in the near future. Um, I don't know if you saw, I've been ranking REM's top 15 records, uh, I just recently put out uh, numbers 10 through 6 uh, a little over a week ago. This thing is incredibly difficult. I knew this was going to be hard to rank the records of my favorite band of all time, but I had no idea it was going to be this difficult. Uh, I am currently working on uh, 5 to 1, 
And uh, no, that's not a Jim Morrison reference. Uh, I'm currently working on numbers five to one, the final installment. And I, I have my rankings, I think, but I haven't done the actual writing and formatting of the article. But I'll have that done for you soon. And I will be sharing that sooner than expected because, again, I am not in Asia. Uh, friendly reminder, this is the part of the show where I tell you that this show and the work that I do here and at the blog are powered by your financial support. I cannot do this show without your paid subscriptions. You can sign up for a subscription for as little as $5 a month. Go to whatamimaking.substack.com. Sign up for a free or a paid subscription today. The other way you can support the show that is enormously helpful is to buy some of our merch. I've got merch that's being pre-ordered. It's going to be ready for delivery in mid-December in time for Christmas. And I need you to go out and buy some t-shirts and some hoodies. I tried to keep them as affordable as I could in small quantities. Every dollar you spend goes directly back into the show. Please consider making a purchase. This is a huge way for you to put some money in the coffers here at What Am I Making? Um, make sure that you're communicating with us with uh, with us via email as well. Go to What Am I Making? Uh, not go to, but send me an email at What Am I Making blog at gmail.com. Feel free to send me ideas, uh, guest suggestions, different things you think I should cover, comments, questions, criticisms, whatever you have. I would love to hear from you. You can also leave me a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash what am I making use your phone or the uh, microphone on your uh, computer or tablet and uh, you can just leave me a good old fashioned voicemail and I'll uh, probably even play it on the show lastly the best thing that you can do for this pod specifically is to like rate and review the pod wherever you listen so if you're on Apple Music or on Spotify give it the nice five stars and a thumbs up if you can write a little review, maybe share it with a friend or two. The best way for us to grow our audience is when you share what, what I'm doing, what we're doing together, what we're making together. When you share that with the people in your life who you think would dig it, you know, it doesn't have to be all the time or every time you like something, but if you think, Hey man, this reminds me of so-and-so send that person a text message or an email or give them a call and go, Hey man, I was thinking about you and I was listening to this thing. And this guy was talking about this. You get the idea. The point is that if you can share this, this will grow more. And the more it grows, the more likely I can make it sustainable work that I can continue to do for the long haul. It's it's really important work I think that I'm doing here. And I love all of the feedback that I'm getting from you. It means so very much. And uh, if you could you know, share and like and rate and review. The more you can engage, the more likely we are to to grow our audience. So this week's episode is a little bit different. Instead of having a, a single guest or a, a focused guest on a an entity or an idea or an experience or a life, I decided to, to bring in a discussion about a movie, a movie that's particularly near and dear to me. It's a film called Breaker Morant. It came out in 1980. It's an Australian film that's based on the true story of three soldiers in the Boer War in South Africa around the turn of the 20th century. And they are on trial for murder. And their defense is that they were just following orders. And what transpires is a real-life story of three men who are on trial for their lives. And the thing that's really on trial is the idea of war itself. The things that it does to human beings and the men who participate in it, the damage that it causes, the terror that it wreaks, and the way that empire building is always going to have casualties. And in this case, those three casualties happen to be soldiers in the Australian army. Now, there are going to be some spoilers in here, so do be careful. 
If you haven't seen this film, maybe give it a, a watch if you don't want to have the ending ruined. I don't remember how detailed we get, but there's some pretty good discussion about some finer points of the film, and we certainly give away the uh, ending. It's a good discussion, and I'm really excited about this idea. And I'll be honest, when only three people showed up, I was a little disappointed, but I also knew that it was going to be something that had to start small. And I'm really proud of this discussion that these three people and I had. I'm really happy with it. And I think it's a really good example of what we can build here and what's available to you the next time that we do one of these, which is going to be soon. And I'll be talking more about that in the very near future. But for right now, here is my conversation with my friends, Tina Winsett, Barry Hommel, and Jeffrey Gower on the absolutely brilliant 1980 Australian masterpiece by the director Bruce Beresford, starring Edward Woodward, Brian Brown, Louis Fitzgerald, and Jack Thompson. Here's our discussion of Breaker Morant. No, I hadn't. I don't know how I, I just, I knew in that era, because I, I was in college when that came out. Yeah. No, I wasn't here. I was in high school because it was 80, right? Yeah. yeah. But were you in college yeah. in Australia? Because otherwise, why would you? <laughs> yeah. But you know, as, uh, many, as much as I've seen, because Lord knows that movie was in my wheelhouse. I don't know how I just had never gotten around to it. So thank well, you. You, you made me watch you, it. Oh, you're very welcome. And And you went to school. In kind of a hip college town, you went to school in Gainesville in the late 70s and mm-hmm. early 80s. Yep. And I saw a lot so, of films because they would do films out on the on the big quad in the okay. the outdoor movie. So Because I remember seeing Romeo and Juliet from that era that I had never seen. Okay. Um, I remember seeing Lawrence of Arabia. I remember seeing a fair amount of older movies then. That's but awesome. Not, not Breaker. Um, so what did you think? I liked it a lot. It um, I just because it's one a subject I really knew pretty much nothing about that war, other right. than a very vague, you know, mention I've of loved, it here or I've there. I loved this movie for forty years, and this is still pretty much all I know about the Boer War. I was just about to say I've seen this movie a couple of times, and that's really all I know about it. So yeah. <laughs> when did you first see it, Maddie? Because you were a kid. Oh, so there's yeah, there's a story behind that. So. My my parents took me to uh, Toronto for spring break in this the, literally the spring of 1980, mm-hmm. and the film had had premiered at Cannes. I forgive me, it was the summer, not the spring. The film, I guess, had premiered at Cannes, and so we were in Toronto, and we were there for three nights, and we went to see a movie each night. And the first night we went to see Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I was really pissed and really upset because the whole reason we had gone to Toronto was I wanted to go to the Royal Ontario Museum so I could see the dinosaurs. And all the dinosaurs were under renovation. And I sobbed. I was, I, was eight, I was eight years old, and I just cried like a little baby. And so my dad said, hey, we should go see this movie. There's, there's a lot of people saying it's really awesome. It's an adventure. It's about this guy who goes on an archaeologist and i'm like fine we'll go and then I, of course yeah I'm fine there's probably no dinosaur i'm sure i'll hate it and then of course you know <laughs> it's only the greatest fucking thing i've ever seen in my life still and then the next night we went to go see the film i really wanted to see which is a little cinematic classic called clash of the titans oh wow 
Rock and Good roll. Good choice, Matt. Yeah. Is, uh, is that the one with Harry Hamlin? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. all the and yeah. Burgess Meredith and uh, mm-hmm. Olivier's in that and Maggie Smith and um, all the effects are done by Ray Harryhausen and they're awesomely awful. Mm-hmm. They're great. <laughs> uh, and of course, I loved that. And then the third night, my parents were like, "No, we're gonna go see a movie for grownups." And my parents <laughs> knew nothing about this movie. And I think I fell asleep. I think I was asleep by the time Breaker takes the stand the first time. Mm-hmm. But I vividly remember the scene where Captain Hutton dies. I vividly remember that being like this sort of hazy blue thing and sitting there in the dark and going, this does not seem good. And then I think it showed up on like HBO a couple of years later. And mm-hmm. I was maybe like 11 or 12. And it was probably right before we moved to the, the house near Lansing. And I saw it again and I went, oh, this is really cool. And then because it was, I don't know that it's my parents' favorite film. I think it's probably their favorite movie theater experience. And I think it was probably my dad's favorite movie. I think if you asked him, him, he would tell you that Breaker was his favorite film. He had others that were close, but that was, yeah, that was his answer. I think it's probably my answer too, although it changes every day. Um, Barry, what's your relationship with this film? Well, I uh, I was part of a small clique in high school that were considered ourselves film aficionados. So nerds. And so nerds, film nerds. nerds yeah. And uh, I was trying to use a big word there, Matt. Come on. And uh, <laughs> so we would go, we saw a ton of films in the theater. So this was the summer, this would have been entering my uh, senior year of high school. And we got a recommendation from our high school English teacher about it. And uh, so the three of us went to see it and had just a magical experience. Now, it was coming off of, you know, Vietnam. So we read it as a Vietnam era, like a parallel storytelling of something that happened in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was Mm -hmm. one of the few ways maybe you could tell a Vietnam War story coming out of Vietnam. You know, I I remember seeing um, Apocalypse Now in a theater as well. But that's Mm -hmm. kind of a weird it's not necessarily based it's in reality funny that you mentioned this Barry and I don't mean to cut you off but in doing a little research I was watching some of the extra stuff on the DVD that I have and Beresford talks about the fact that Vietnam vets would come up to him in public and say we love that film and they yeah. all they all saw the Cali at me lie thing as mm-hmm. the Vietnam example of breaker that here was a scapegoat who was doing exactly what everyone else had been told, but he'd been caught. And so now we were going to make an example of him, even though he had just been doing what he was told. Yeah. The parallels are clearly there. And they even say that in the film, right? They say it's a new kind of war where they're not wearing uniforms and they're just farmers. And that's Mm -hmm. all exactly what was happening in Vietnam at the time. So we went in seeing it as a Vietnam, you know, like, telling a story about Vietnam using this war that, again, we knew nothing about the war either. And to your point, I don't know anything in addition either. I've even, I've always wanted to go back and read the book written by the youngest character who ultimately wrote a book about this experience. Um, I think it's the the character of George Witten in the film. Yeah. The book is called uh, scapegoats of the empire. Yes. And uh, I I should pick that up at some point and read it because I do um, really, really enjoy this movie. So the movie had a big impact on me. It was one of those kind of, artsy films that we kind of 
fancied ourselves seeing when the rest of the gangs were seeing the rest of our peers were seeing things like clash of the titans for example we weren't to be bothered with that we were going to go see these kind of heady smart films and um but i still have fond memories of it now i hadn't seen it for a long time until you suggested uh that you might be doing this matt and i went and watched it i don't know a few months ago when it first came up in a conversation we had i watched yeah. it and then I, knowing that this was bearing down on me, I watched it a second time. So I've seen it twice back to back over the last couple of months. And I really like it on so many, I, I love the storytelling on so many levels because they tell the story somewhat chronologically, but not necessarily. The flashbacks are interesting the way they do it because they add, like you get the, sometimes you get the court case story before you see the flashback. And so it's sort of like, whose perspective are you really seeing before you get the final answer? the the uh german uh missionary being the best example of that like there's right. there's, there's some there's bobbing some, and weaving of, with that some parallel timeline stuff that they do a couple of times where you kind of see things in reverse order um i i also really appreciate how um a lot of it is not it's dense information that's not telegraphed so it's delivered kind of in this succinct verbal way that's very direct but there's a lot of information there and they don't slow down and wait for you to pick it up but they do other non-verbal things to reinforce it like when he does the the rule 303 speech and they in and mcalpine does the pan down and you very clearly see the 303 caliber listed on the rifle it's very subtle but if you're not paying deliberate attention to what rule 303 means this puts the pieces together for you and it's literally just a blink of an eye and it's those little details to me that sort of elevated above kind of what sort of an average film. Not just yes, the, the story is not well, telegraphed necessarily. No, not at all. And Jeff, you you hadn't seen this until we met each other, correct? Yeah. How long have we known each other? 20 years? Something like that. So I probably saw it first time 19 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Right I probably, you're you're right. I probably didn't wait long to make you watch <laughs> yeah, it. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Hey, dude, you got to watch uh, it. Hey, I know we don't know each other well, but hey. But we're going <laughs> to. Let's start um, with this. Um, but I've uh, seen it. Uh, the, the, my most recent watching last week was probably the fourth time I have, I've okay. watched it. Um, has it changed much as you've watched it over the years in your mind? <sighs> I got to say, no, it really hasn't. Um, you know, the thing that always stands out to me is that the, the empire is never wrong. Whether it's the British empire, Darth Vader's empire, or uh, not to bring modern politics in it, to it, but the Israeli empire. Um, the, 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 empire. the empire is never, <laughs> never wrong. Right. Uh, regardless of what they may have done on the sidelines or behind the scenes, uh, you know. And that, that's kind of what it stands out to you know, for me. I, um, yeah, I, the, 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 the cogs in the wheel thing of like, it doesn't being, the, there's a scene where Breaker just looks at Jack Thompson. And he just goes, why bother major? Why bother? Yeah. Why bother? And it's at that point that you go, that's kind of, this whole thing is a charade. Like it, they all, they're all acknowledging it. Like we're just going to, we're, we're going to walk through this exercise. And then at the end, these two dudes are going to die and there's never that's the other thing there's never really any doubt that they're going to that they're going to be convicted and that they're going to die no at every not. turn at every turn where there's some possible like you know 
explanation for their behavior. It's it's thwarted in every way. Well, I would say they do they do tease you a bit on that, Matt, when they when they call George in first and then they give him they give him the sentence and then they commute it. So now there's you know, there's still a little bit of suspense going to happen in the next 90 seconds. But there's a little bit of suspense about whether they're going to do that for the other two guys or not. Well, there's that Um, and there's that scene where they're celebrating and the the guards bring the champagne for champagne and it looks like they're going to get leniency on the Hess case. That for the missionary that they're gonna they're gonna and that's that's basically the linchpin if they don't get convicted of that they're probably not gonna die i, re- I remember the first time i saw the film and they brought um is winnet george is it george winnet yeah they, they, they Whitten. Demand, Whitten. i thought they were gonna try to get him to flip like flip mm-hmm. oh okay yeah i did too and, and you know and he, he'd get off scot-free and and the other two guys would get but that obviously didn't happen yeah uh I, that's what, I, of you, that's what I felt building up. Yeah. Right. They do have his book, the scapegoat book. Is not, If you have a library card, the Hoopla, because I just downloaded it, the oh, nice. um, Hoopla app. So um, it's not on. App. Yeah, it's not on Libby, at least not for my library. Okay. With Libby, but it, but it is on Hoopla. So. And this is why you're the done mother. That's right. <laughs> She's amazing. already done the research in real um, time. Uh, <laughs> I'm always I'm always amazed, not just at how terrific Brian Brown is at comic relief, mm. but how well he does it within the sincerity of the moment. So even when he realized, like that scene where he's like, I'm just wondering how much more serious things could get. Like that's mm-hmm. funny and honest and and breaks the tension, but doesn't cheat the moment. And I think there's a lot of that that's done really well. And I, I forget sometimes, not just how enjoyable it is, but how, how necessary that is to the, the film being really fu- just functionally good. And true to his character, too, because that's sort of um, he's an interesting character in that regard. Um, yep. He's in there for the because he simply needs the cash. Yeah, he's he's out running the debt collectors. He's left a wife and son at home and he's just there trying to get a payday. Um, the other two guys are their motivations for it's fun that all three are there for a different motivation, right? And so oh, sure. he's just a regular guy, middle class kind of guy, thrust into this thing, and everything about his character fits into that. So he he does have the best sense of humor because that's sort of his character. The other guy's too young to really know what's going on, and and Breaker Moran himself is too seasoned not to know what's going on, right? So it's almost like yeah. Goldilocks and the three bears, that character. Uh, is just right for me yes yes uh and um, because george is george is young enough to keep some hope that they'll get out of it oh there's that because really up it where he says my whole family believes in the empire do you believe in the empire Mm -hmm. harry and harry goes do Mm -hmm. i like he knows he knows what's up Mm -hmm. and and that's in a way you are you sort of watch this through witten's eyes if you're one of the defendants, you're him watching these other two. And that's really your entrance into their world because he's learning how all this sort of coded language works and all these different uh, yeah. sort of- And even at the end, even at the end, he runs to those two guys. Why are they doing this to us? Like like their parents to him, you know? Yeah. Why are they doing this to us? I don't, I don't understand what, what's happening right now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he- in many respects, 
is is spared, I guess. But you know, it, it it certainly appears that everyone who was involved in this carried this with them for the rest of their lives. I mean, there's the the, the point at which uh, they talk about Major Thomas going back to New South Wales, but he lives basically as a recluse. Just doesn't see people. He does the bare minimum. You know, Taylor stays in in South Africa, and it sounds like that's really kind of a bust. Um, you know, Witten kind of flits around. I did a little research on him. He he flits around a little bit, stays in the military uh, a, a second time, and then and then writes this book, and then and then dies fairly young. I mean, he he dies before uh, before Thomas does. Um, it's yeah, he he did die very young. Yeah. Um, I feel like, and I hadn't really thought about it till just this moment, that I feel like in a lot of ways, the movie, we see that story unfold through George Witten's eyes, right? Because we're naive the way he's naive in the yes. context of the story. And so when things happen that we're in disbelief, like you hear the argument and you see them just sort of smacking down the arguments because the, the end is predisposed, right? Or it's already been predetermined. And you're in disbelief. Well, you're that's your Witten's character at that point because you're just as naive as he was and and you're in that disbelief and i think the linchpin of his performance by the way he gives a very subtle understated performance it's really powerful in a lot of ways and the key to it is when he goes back to his cell when he's been told he's got life in prison and they hold that shot 20 or 30 seconds yeah i think they call morant out and he's still standing there and staring off into space and you, you just can't help, but imagine the number of things going through his head in that span of time that he stands there. It's a really understated performance, but it's incredibly powerful in the moment. And it makes you think about how sort of understated his whole performance was in the movie. He is sort of reactive to what's going on around him in very subtle ways that are just brilliant. Yeah. He can't control anything. He's, I mean, he's subordinate to them in every possible way. And he has no idea how to navigate it, even from just the standpoint of being a grown adult. Like Jeff was saying, he's like a child. Uh, and I think in some ways, those parents, for lack of a better word, are great at providing the, the sort of cold, harsh reality where they don't, they don't cotton to the, the, the fanciful dreams of what ifs. You know, he's, he's, you know they're, they're, they're going to cashier you. They're going they're going to hang you. The penalty's death. We're not fucking around here. And what he doesn't get is any kind of greater he, he doesn't get any understanding from the two of them about why this is happening because they're already so cynical about it. And so you as the viewer are left yearning and searching for that. And I think that's where those questions come from. The other thing I learned was that the 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 film is based <laughs> on a book that then led to a play that then led to a screenplay that was rejected by Bruce Beresford, which he then rewrote, which is what appears in the film that you see. And one of the film, one of the things in the film that is not included, and I cannot imagine seeing this without this included is Jack Thompson's entire speech at the end, where he talks about the, the ebb and flow of everyday life being replaced by chaos and blood and death. That whole thing was the last thing they shot for the film. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. They had they had to be out by like two o'clock in the afternoon. And so they had one really good long take. And so Thompson literally like stayed up all night learning the whole goddamn thing and getting it right. And they and that that is 
that is the performance that he gave that day. It's that that's all he did was that. Like there's not much left based on what those guys had to say about it. How about that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um It is a, an amazing speech. An amazing an amazing performance. I what yeah, thing was speech that, like, after speech, speech after speech, you know, uh as the as the audience you're just like, "Yep, that's the winning argument." Yep. And, and, and that happens like three or four freaking times. It's like, yep, okay, that that's the one. Oh no, that's the one. And then it still ends up the way it ends up. And uh, yeah, it, it it does give you hope. So even though you know what the outcome is going to be er, early on, you know, yeah. but it gives you hope the entire time. It's crazy. But again, it's that it's that like suspension of cynicism. You don't want to go to the two old salts you want to run to the kid and you want to believe it's going to be okay you want to believe it's going to work out like most of the movies you've seen and of course it's there's, not because it's that, based on real life <laughs> yeah for sure there's that one scene in the trial where brian brown's character gets very excited over their attorney making that one good speech and hitting points where it looks like they're having a real good day and he leans over to shake his hand with a it's like the only kind of time you see hope on his face that Maybe this isn't going to turn out the way, but then a scene or two later, you know, when it becomes obvious that they're being ruled against at every turn, it's kind of back to, okay, we know what's happening here. Yeah. I think that was like, that was the first argument that they, I think so. Yeah. yeah. They pre- presented and, uh, and, and Brown was like, this guy has no experience. He's not, he's, he's going to mm-hmm. be a shit lawyer. And then suddenly, oh, hey, here's this argument out of left field. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely right. Yeah. Um, did you guys notice? Uh, I didn't notice it on this watch, but it's just been within the last couple of years I figured this out. This film does not have a score. Oh, no, yeah. they just they rely a lot on that uh, band that plays in the band shell. If they want any music, it always goes back right. to that military band, which is an interesting thing yeah. to do. It talks about the pomps, the 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 pomp of the military band, and just the falsehood of you know how precise and you know the military is. Well, and how and so it's also good. supposed to lend a sort of a a, a jovial elegance to it. And they even play pomp and circumstance during the. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. So here's here's two things I'd never noticed about this before. I had never noticed when they play Pomp and Circumstance. I'd always re- recognized that they played it. I never had thought about the timing. That is what's played right before Jack Thompson gives his closing argument speech that we were just talking about. So, essentially, this is graduation. So that's, I think, why it was used there. And then the second thing is, I did not realize until this viewing that halfway through the film when the Dutch translator is killed on the street, Mm-hmm. And you see his body laying there in the uh, path. The music that the band is playing is an instrumental version of the song that the Dutch prisoner sings at the fancy dinner earlier in the film. Oh. It's the exact same song. And so to me, what that says is we've taken this cultural thing that we like and we've now made it our own. And that's what we do because we're British. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting, the significance under the... the uh murder of that guy because you know that's the one thing in the movie that it's a little bit of a mystery to me like who killed him and why and what was the motivation you know that's always been left it's it's uh it's actually spelled out pretty clearly by brian brown yeah i mean they don't 
they yeah. don't want to trade it in there. Right. The, the, the deal is it, it comes out around town that he has volunteered to be in the firing squad for Visser for the first guy that gets killed that's wearing Captain Hunt's jacket. Yes. He volunteers mm-hmm. for that firing squad. That comes out in the trial. That then goes out into town. Now all of a sudden there's a very, according to Brian Brown, his life's not worth half a crown. Meaning you can buy off his death incredibly cheaply. And so the the, the prevailing wisdom I've always thought was that somebody ended his life be, out of vengeance because, of, because he had co-opted with the other side. And he so you think was, it was the the boars that killed him, not yes, um, absolutely. Okay, yes, because really in the trial he doesn't admit to that, right? He lies on the stand. Uh, but it's so that obvious not, that he lies, and there's other people who say yeah. otherwise. So it's like once the once the doubt gets out, it's like, well, he can't be trusted. So he's, it's like a it's almost like an Omerta thing. It's like, well, he's got to go. Um. Yeah, that was the one thing I never really, it, it never really dawned on me who was responsible for that. Because it could have been either side, right? Could have been somebody from either side who did that. And maybe that's part of the point. Is that yeah, that's true. You, you know, it's it doesn't really matter who ended his life. Sooner or later, it was going to happen, and it was going to happen sooner, probably. Uh, I, I, you know, the other the other line that kills me about this whole thing that should have just ended it is that is there's a scene where uh, Colonel Hamilton is talking to Lord Kitchener. And he says, I believe I talked to you about the complexities of charging soldiers in the field with murder. And I think if there's anything that felt timely about this movie based on the last two weeks, mm. it was that moment. And it was that at the end of the day, whether we want to call it defending ourselves or terrorism or something in between, it's still just a different word for murder. It's just mm-hmm. murder. And we can get as complicated about it as we want. But at the end of the day, it's just murder. And there's something so simple about that, that, that in a way it crystallized my <laughs> my just seething anger and heartbreak over the last two weeks. Yeah, and I, and I meant to ask you because I, I was trying to figure, figure out the timing of when you planned all this. And whether that's what kind of pushed you to to no. bring this up, you had scheduled this before that ever happened. But the timeliness of this is amazing because as you're watching the film and you realize, you know, some of the things that are going on on both sides in that conflict now in the Middle East, it's the response to. So Breaker Morant is basically charged with murder because he responded to the murder of his friend um, in a more brutal way than he had acted Maybe a little bit more brutal way than he had acted the whole time, right? Who's to say? But maybe a little more hostility, a little more anger. But his response to that in a vengeful way is what really was his undoing. And I feel like that we're going to see some of that now. Like the events of yesterday, I don't know the timing of this with the when you're going to drop this, but the events of the hospital bombing or whatever happened in gaza yeah where it's not even clear who's responsible for it and both camps have already predetermined what the answer is right. and are using that to leverage further violence and the response to the initial attack is horrific does that justify the response that's a hard call because you may not come out looking like the good guys with that response and that's a really tough call 
Um, I don't want to be flipping about this, um, but I don't really know what else to do because there's no good answer if I take a serious approach. So I'll just ask Jeffrey. Jeffrey, what happens when you retaliate in hockey? Uh, you you draw the penalty. Matt. That is correct. You go to the box. Yeah. Barry, Barry Hummel's a season ticket holder of the Florida Panthers. He knows this information. He knows how this works. I'll, I'll be missing tomorrow night's okay. stand-up hangout because it's opening night here at the it's Florida opening Panthers. Opening night, <laughs> Florida Panthers. Uh, going, going back to my earlier comments about, about how the Empire is never wrong, yeah. Uh, Major Bolton in a very early scene um, says uh, something similar to what I can imagine being said in the current situation. They lack our altruism. Yes. And um, he believes that. He and does. there are players in today's situation that believe that they are, they are that, you know? Yes. Um, and as Barry said, we are that, and the other side cannot be that, and that is true of all involved parties. And that's the theme from war to war to war. I'm watching um, World on Fire on PBS. It's a miniseries set in World War II, and this last episode was this this season part of it set in Africa, and there's a, a group of the British soldier, soldiers that have a, a group of Indian soldiers fighting with them, which of course they're getting all the racism and all the shit from the English guys. And there's a scene where everyone in the Indian, um, they're, um, I forget what size, anyhow, but their group of soldiers, there's just two of them left alive. And they have this discussion between each other. Uh, you know, we have to fight to keep Hitler because he will take over everything. But as soon as we're done with this, then we've got to fight the British empire because of what they're doing to us. You know, it's, it's all these layers in there, you know, because, and it's the same thing, you know, their guys get killed and, you know, that's the excuse to be very violent, you know, to get the people who did it. And then the one British soldier in particular, they show you him dealing with, you know, him feeling like he's losing his humanity because of this war and how does he get back to it? But, you know, so it was, that was, you know, in, in Breaker, you see so many things that are just from what, it doesn't matter which groups of people, what part of the world, the same things circling around war all the time, you know, and as human, you know, you'd like to think we learn and move on and figure out better ways to do, deal with things. And then, you know, you look at what's going on in the Middle East and, it's hard not to feel like it's just perpetual. Well, you know, yeah, from one cycle to another. Yeah, dehumanizing people—that—that's mm -hmm. the—that's the trend in in uh, human society. Mm -hmm. So you know, the Boers were absolutely subhuman, and the Australians, even though they were fighting on the side of the British, they were less than human as well. Right. In the, right. They so, were British. Remember, they weren't British. They were British subjects. That's right. Mm -hmm. There's a difference. Um, and they were uh, they were is, the criminals how, that had been sent to Australia because they were criminals. And this is this is how people rise to power. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, look at look at our own country for crying out loud. Yeah. Um, well, other you know, we the, the idea of value human life. Yeah. yeah, the idea of othering people so that you can yeah, make them sure. the enemy is. I mean, we've been doing that since Cain and Abel. Um, I uh, exactly.
they had a they had a hardware store up in uh, Chesnang. You didn't you don't remember? Oh, oh yeah. Can, can, can enables butts and nolts and more. I, I, I bought my I bought my hammers at the the big box store. Oh, okay. Of course you did. Um, I will uh, I will close things from my perspective with what is a line that I use all the time and is one of my favorite lines from a movie ever, and that is. Uh, live every day as if it were your last. One day you're sure to be right. Yep. Yeah. So, very, very touching and poignant line. Uh, and I would like to, I would like to live my life like that, but then life gets in the way, and I just yeah, end up, does. I just end up living a day. I was, I was going to say that. Then, 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 then the, life you're, the life you're living winds up being shorter. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you so much for doing this, guys. This was really fun. Yeah, right on. Yeah, I'm so glad it. you suggested it. I really I, uh, enjoyed the movie. I'm gonna I'm gonna carve this up and make it semi presentable and we'll share it and people will know how fun it was and we'll do another one of these when I get back from Asia. Nice. So. And I'm really it's glad nice to hear good. about that trip. Tina, I'm really glad that you were here so it's not just a bunch of uh, old, <laughs> old guys reminiscing about high school. <laughs> well, I certainly hope this is not my last day because I want to do this again sometime, Matt. So all thanks right. for inviting us. It's definitely. Thank you, yes, guys. Nice. I appreciate you all so very much. I love you. Nice to meet you, right. Jeffrey. Oh, nice to Bye. meet you. Bye. Bye. There it is. Our first installment of the What Am I Watching? What Am I Making? Movie Club. We discussed the wonderful, absolutely brilliant 1980 classic Breaker Morant. Those are my friends, Tina Winsett, Barry Hummel, and Jeffrey Gower. I want to thank you. I want to thank them so much for joining me the night that we recorded this. We're going to do another one of these. I am working on it. I am going to be announcing dates and the film soon. I'm very excited about it. I really hope that this will give you an indication of what you can be a part of and that you can uh, watch these films along with us, join in the discussion, and hopefully these will keep being conversations that are worth sharing. Thank you again for being here. Thank you again for all of your support. It means the world to me. Remember, I can't do this without your paid support. Please think about going over and making a paid subscription over at whatamimaking.substack.com. Be sure to check out my weekly radio show, WAIM Radio, over at suburbsradio.com. And of course, I'll see you over there on the Substack with posts every day. Be well, my friends. I love you, and I'll see you on the flip side.